0: I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to On Fairy Stories. I I strayed out of thought and time. I've really yeah, you know, done things all good. You know. In this podcast, we explore compelling stories of lost worlds and ask big questions about what fairy stories can teach us today. If you're enjoying the show, make sure you've subscribed wherever you listen to your podcasts, and this part's really important, Uh, leave a review on iTunes so that the show comes up in searches. You can learn more, contact me, and find resources for each episode online at onfairystories.com. So without further ado, let's get going on today's topic. The Little Mermaid and the longing for an immortal soul. If you're at all familiar with the story of the Little Mermaid, it's probably thanks to the animated Disney musical released in 1989. Wow, that's a long time ago now. (laughs) Uh, You know the story of the red-haired young Ariel longing for life on land, a place where people dance and fall in love. You know about her deal with the sea witch, Ursula, and how she gave up her voice, and how she almost lost that handsome and kind Prince Eric to the sea witch's spell. You also know how in the end, it all turned out alright again, how the story ends, in a triumphant wedding at sea and happily ever after. We have no immortal souls. We have no future life. We are just like the green seaweed which once cut down can never revive again. Men on the other hand have a soul which lives forever, lives after the body has become dust. It rises through the clear air up to the shining stars. That's a quote from hans christian anderson's original fairy tale the little mermaid published in 1837 and of course that's the story that the disney movie is based on anderson's story is much darker deeper and in many ways i think much more interesting uh, as much as the little mermaid longs for love in anderson's version she longs all the more for an immortal soul the unique gift bestowed on human beings Hans Christian Andersen was born in Denmark in 1805. He wrote 156 stories across 9 volumes, and they've been translated into more than 125 languages. Some of his stories you probably know, The Emperor's New Clothes, The Ugly Duckling, The Princess and the Pea, and of course The Little Mermaid, arguably the most famous of his stories. I've only recently discovered Anderson, and I have to say that his fairy tales are sort of odd. Uh, Many of them are really, really sad. Uh, The Little Match Girl, for example, describes a poor forgotten child freezing to death on the streets, and the only fairy tale-like intervention comes in the form of her long-dead grandmother come to gather up the child's soul and bring it to God. And the story ends with um, just all the people on the street sort of finding this young girl's body in the street and saying how cold she must have been. So that's really not your typical happily ever after fairy story right there. Um, Deeply religious themes I've seen, um, I've noticed pervades Anderson's work. And sometimes he does have a tendency to quickly sum up a complex idea with a simple moralistic lesson. uh, Sort of ending with like, that's why children need to always listen to their parents. (laughs) Um, The writing itself though is really exquisite and dreamlike and uh, Anderson clearly has such an eye for beauty and he creates these just magnificent worlds. The Little Mermaid, I think, is a particularly beautiful story. I won't read it to you. I don't want this podcast to turn into audible, (laughs) but I highly recommend reading it or listening to it for yourself. Um, I will describe the plot to you and also sort of how it's different than maybe the story you're familiar with, and I definitely want to discuss in more detail the complex questions the story explores, especially those related to love, immortality, and sacrifice. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about mermaids. So, mermaids as a concept of the human imagination are incredibly old. I'm sure you've heard of Homer's sirens, originally thought of as half-woman, half-bird, but they quickly changed into mermaids in legends and lore. They're beautiful women, half-wed to the sea, and they're coming to drag sailors to their death with their beautiful singing. Uh, The first known mermaid stories appeared in Assyria in 1000 BC. Uh, There's a story about a beautiful goddess who falls in love with a mortal, but she's so ashamed of this that she throws herself into the sea. And in order to disguise her incredible beauty to the waters below, she becomes half fish, half woman. Some ancient philosophers thought human beings had begun their lives as fish, and there were still some in that half state living in the water. Um, There's also stories in A Thousand and One Nights, many depictions of mermaids there. The protagonist, Abdullah the fisherman, goes underwater where he discovers a whole society of mermaids. In England and Ireland, uh, there are many mermaid stories. Uh, Mermaids in British and Celtic folklore are usually unlucky omens. They appear before shipwrecks and storms and drownings. Uh, Durham Castle in England contains what is thought to be the earliest surviving artistic depiction of a mermaid in England. I'll put a picture of that on the website if you want to go visit that when you're done uh, listening to this episode. Um, there's this really enchanting story of, um, I'm going to maybe mispronounce her name, but it's Liban. Uh, this is a Celtic story. This is the legend that surrounds the formation of Loch Ne in Northern Ireland. Funny side story. My husband and I, uh, after college, we went hiking around Northern Ireland, completely unprepared. We were going to follow the Ulster way, and we spent about a month just being lost and just having various disasters. But we did, uh, through a series of misadventures, end up at Loch Ney, and I can tell you that it's very, very beautiful. So I was thrilled to uh, learn that there was this wonderful story behind its formation. So in this story, um, there's a woman who is turned into a mermaid after a spring burst forth in in that area, which is now Loch Ney. And she survived the flooding, living in an underwater chamber for a year, after which she had merged as a mermaid, specifically half-human, half-salmon. I think she still had human proportions, though. Not sure. Um, and her little lapdog uh, assumed the form of an otter, and they were free to uh, explore the sea for 300 years. And, um, but at some point, at, I think about the end of this 300 years, her angelic singing got the attention of the early Irish saint, St. Cumgul, Again, sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, And he brought her ashore and baptized her. She immediately died and ascended into heaven, forfeiting another 300 years in the sea for an immortal soul. So this is a really important thing to remember when we discuss the details of Anderson's rendition of The Little Mermaid, because it's very, very similar to what happens. Uh, if you listen to the first episode of this podcast, Selkie Stories and Fisherman's Tales, you know that there's this unique lore of the sea in Fairy's Tales and in Myth, um, that there are these sea folk, these half-human, half-fish beings that are never quite comfortable on land or in the ocean, and that um, they're restless creatures, a lot like human beings in that way, that they aren't really at home in the world. Anderson's Little Mermaid is a shy, delicate creature. She lives underwater as royalty, the daughter of the Sea King. She and her five sisters have to wait until their 15th birthday to have a look above the surface. And uh, she's the youngest, so she has to wait the longest. And her older sisters all describe different beautiful scenes, the sun setting and chasing that sun and trying to see where it goes, church bells ringing, people dancing, all really beautiful and mysterious scenes. Uh, So when the Little Mermaid finally gets her turn, she watches the birthday celebration for a prince held on a magnificent boat. As she watches, she falls in love with this handsome prince. And so when a storm hits, she saves him from drowning, leaving him on the beach near a temple. She waits out in the ocean, camouflaged with some seaweed behind a rock in the water, uh, until some temple maidens find him and bring him to safety. She sadly realizes that the prince will never realize it was she who saved him sad alone back underwater the little mermaid asks her wise grandmother about the lifetime of human beings and the grandmother explains that mermaids live much longer about 300 years but when they die they are lost forever they become sea foam human beings however uh, even though they have a much shorter life have an immortal soul so ultimately it is this longing for immortality even more than her love for the prince that drives the little mermaid to make a deal with the sea witch The witch drives a really hard bargain. She explains that um, she'll give the Little Mermaid legs and they'll be beautiful legs. She'll be graceful and elegant and a beautiful dancer. But the entire time she's a human, it will feel as if she's walking on knives and she'll be in constant pain. More than that, she says that the only way to gain an immortal soul is to marry the prince and receive the sacrament, becoming one as husband and wife. And if she fails to woo the prince, she'll die, becoming seafoam the night he weds someone else. And there's still one more price she has to pay, her voice, her beautiful, delicate, enchanting voice. But the Little Mermaid, uh, so in love, so longing for an immortal soul, agrees to all these these conditions. So she goes to the surface and takes the potion and feels her body split in two with pain. And then the handsome prince finds her on the beach and sort of adopts her into his household as a sort of sad orphan. (laughs) And uh, the relationship with them is sort of interesting. They're friends, and but um, he definitely sort of pities her, sort of looks at her as this sort of pathetic girl. She's very beautiful, of course, but she's mute and sort of staring at him with wide eyes and so infatuated with him. He mostly feels sort of bad for her. As for himself, he tells The Little Mermaid that he's in love with the young temple girl who he thinks saved his life on the seashore. And in a tragic twist of fate, the temple maiden turns out to be a princess after all, uh, she was hanging out in the temple receiving her religious education. So this means that um, the match is made with the prince and the wedding is set. The Little Mermaid is heartbroken of course, but um, helps with the preparation and on the night of the wedding she, and this is a quote from Anderson, she laughed and danced with the thought of death in her heart. As the sun is rising, she's looking out on the ocean, preparing for her death, and that's when she sees her five sisters come out of the water with their hair cut. It turns out they've sold their hair to the sea witch for a knife, and this is a magical knife that once it is plunged into the heart of the prince, it will restore the little mermaid her her fishtail and will give her another 300 years of life under the sea. So they throw her the knife and beg her to come home. Feeling really tortured and sad, she um, goes into the prince's bedroom and sees him blissfully wrapped in the arms of his beautiful new bride, Uh, and then just her heart absolutely breaking, she goes back out to the ocean, throws the knife into the waves, and throws herself into the water after it, expecting to become one with the sea foam lost forever. However, something marvelous happens. At that moment, she's lifted into the air and sort of melts into the breeze, and she's hearing voices all around her, and they tell her that they are air spirits. Uh, She's been given the chance to gain an immortal soul because of her sacrificial actions. So she's basically um, sort of like a wind nymph now and uh, she'll be given the opportunity to blow these gentle kind breezes on tear-stained cheeks and soothe hurting hearts in springtime and one day she too can have a soul. This ending inspired a lot of debate. Uh, the original thought was that the mermaid would simply become uh, seafoam uh, and die, completely making this story a true tragedy. Lost love, lost soul, etc. But Anderson wanted a chance at redemption. P.L. Travers, author of the Mary Poppins books, really hated this ending. She thought it was cheap and moralistic and she wrote to tell Anderson so. But Anderson insisted that his ending was the only right, divine, and just ending. And here's a quote from Anderson. I have not allowed the mermaid's acquiring of an immortal soul to depend upon an alien creature, upon the love of a human being. I'm sure that's wrong. It would depend much rather on chance, wouldn't it? I won't accept that sort of thing in this world. I have permitted my mermaid to follow a more natural, more divine path. So In the end, Anderson has given his mermaid agency, the really, maybe most beautiful part of being a human being, choice, the ability to earn her soul. This is such a beautiful story, and I think it hints at Anderson's deeply sensitive soul, his understanding that our emotions, even our difficult emotions, are really a gift. Um, There's a line in the story that is, but a mermaid has no tears, and therefore she suffers all the more. This is just so sad to me. You think about how a mermaid is underwater and she can't cry and how that makes her pain all that much more acute. So the little mermaid has been given a gift that we, human beings, are born with. Her natural soul uh, as a mermaid might live longer, may be happily living life in the ocean, dancing under coral trees, but her soul ends, it melts into the earth, and all her happiness, joy, sadness, and longing die with her. Human beings, on the other hand, live forever, both in thought, deed, and word, so it is that even her unrequited love for the prince becomes a sort of gift, um, because it brought her to a self-sacrifice so pure that now she has hope for immortality. So of course, if you're familiar with the Disney version, uh, you know uh, that this version by Anderson is obviously very different. Uh, The original here is uh, a much deeper story, a much more sad story but it really provokes really interesting questions about what the Little Mermaid is seeking from the surface Uh, in the Disney version Ariel sort of has this superficial curiosity about people's lives you know she loves uh, these artifacts that her seagull friend brings her um, forks and sort of these remnants of human life she has a statue of Prince Eric that she's obsessed with and actually there is a a statue of a man that um, The Little Mermaid in Anderson's story is also infatuated with, but it has sort of a different dynamic there. Um, So we have to wonder sort of what is Ariel longing for? You know, she has her sisters, she has her family. There's no concept of uh, whether this change to life on land, what that means for her mortality. If anything, the implication is that she is actually giving up a sort of magical existence under the sea with her father, the sea king, Who has uh, sort of all these magical abilities for a much more mundane existence with the prince? And of course, the biggest difference being that uh, the Disney version naturally is a quote unquote happy ending with uh, a, with a wedding and the prince falling in love with the right person falling in love with Ariel and then living ap- happily ever after. Of course, this raises all kinds of questions uh, that Anderson alluded to about agency because basically uh, Ariel's whole life, her whole destiny rests on uh, the sort of on this sort of ambiguous idea about whether this man will fall in love with her or not uh and he wanted to give her more power than that he wanted this to be a story that gave her mortality her morality and her ability to save her own soul. He wanted to put that into her own hands, which I think is really beautiful. So I hope you enjoyed these stories. I hope you um, maybe are inspired to read the Anderson version, revisit the Disney version, just explore these uh, beautiful stories about mermaids. and uh, ask some questions about what it means to have an immortal soul. What is this gift of mortality that human beings seem so quick to dismiss? Uh, We talked last time on episode three, uh, talking about time, about how human beings see their mortality as this sort of curse, while the elves in Tolkien's universe see it as a gift. And I think uh, we see that sort of distinction here in the story of the Little Mermaid as well. Let's end today's episode with two quotes of Hans Christian Andersen. Everything you look at can become a fairy tale, and you get a story from everything you touch. The whole world is a series of miracles, but we're so used to them, we call them ordinary things. I'm Katie Marquette, and you've been listening to On Fairy Stories. I strayed out of thought and time. I should it doesn't make me look good, you know.